2: And on it, there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one McCrispie. So go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem
1: of a detour. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals.
0: I have a dream That One day
3: This nation will rise up Live out the true meaning of its creed
1: Because we intend to fire our people up so much Until if they can't have their equal share in the house They'll burn it down
3: This civil rights act is a challenge to all of us to go to work in our communities and our states, in our homes and in our hearts, to eliminate the last vestiges of injustice.
4: Welcome back to this History Extra podcast series where we're charting some of the key moments in the transformative history of the U.S. civil rights movement, the fight for equality that dominated mid-20th century America, with a legacy that continues to shape the world around us today. I'm Rhiannon Davis, section editor for BBC History magazine, and in this six-part series, I'm speaking to leading historians to explore some of the crucial moments that defined this struggle for racial equality. In each episode, our experts will recount one significant story from the movement and consider its place in the wider fight for civil rights. In our last episode, we delved into the history of direct action, revisiting Rosa Parks's momentous decision not to vacate her bus seat in Montgomery, Alabama in 1955, and the citywide bus boycott that followed and inspired the nation. In today's episode... We're moving forward in time by almost a decade to 1963's March on Washington. On 28th of August, a multiracial crowd of more than 250,000 protesters descended on the nation's capital, Washington, D.C., and marched to the Lincoln Memorial, calling for jobs and freedom. To keep the protesters' spirits high, a variety of speakers and entertainers performed for the crowd, from the national chairman of the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, John Lewis, to the singer, Bob Dylan. However, it was the last speaker of the day whose words have been immortalised in history. In the shadow of the Lincoln Memorial, Martin Luther King Jr. stood on a podium and addressed the expectant crowd, as well as the watching TV cameras, sharing with the world his dream for a brighter America. When we're thinking about the US civil rights movement, it's important to remember that these events happened only a few decades ago. They're still within living memory for some. That's the case for our first expert for this episode, Claiborne Carson, the Martin Luther King Jr. Centennial Professor Emeritus at Stanford University, who actually attended the March on Washington as a 19-year-old student. I asked him to share his memories of the protest, which was the first he ever attended, and how it felt to witness history in the making.
3: Well, for me, the idea of going to the march started when I was at a student conference, a national student conference, National Student Association, meeting in Uh, Indiana, the University of Indiana. And uh, this happened to be right before the march was uh, scheduled to happen. I think when I went to Indiana, I didn't know that that was going to lead me to go to the march too. But while I was at the student conference, there was this uh, person there, uh, Stokely Carmichael. He was a, a student at Howard University representing them. And he was at the march trying to get the National Student Association to come out and support the march. I think he wanted financial support as well as uh, moral support for the march. And there was a lot of reluctance at the conference to do that because um, many of the chapters were in the South at segregated universities. And, uh, And it actually turned out to be correct that for the National Student Association to take a position in favor of the march might lead those chapters to be closed down because that would be implying that they were supporting integration that hadn't happened at their campuses. So uh, I talked with him and and, uh, tried to get on board with the idea of getting the NSA to support the march. Uh, They came out with a statement uh, that was kind of reluctant to actively support it, but just basically said, we support the ideals of the march. So no one was really satisfied, and and it ended up actually uh, marking the last, uh, I think it was the last conference of the National Student Association because their southern chapters uh, withdrew from the organization. But in any case, while there, I just decided, look, I'm not that far from the march. Growing up in New Mexico, you think of 500 miles as not that far. You know, this is, it was a big state. And I thought it was something that I would like to do, and I'd never have another chance to be that close. So um, I heard about a NAACP, the National Association for Advancement of Colored People. Their chapter in Indianapolis was going to rent a bus to go to the march. And I managed to get a seat on the bus. And so there I went Uh, the night before the march, got on the bus, with a bunch of strangers, and I ended up that next morning at the march. And so that whole day, I I really knew no one, but I just wandered around. And uh, it was was the most exciting event of my life at that point because there were more black people there than were in the entire southwest States, you know, the, not only New Mexico, but all the surrounding states, except for Texas, um, where not very many Black people lived. So, uh, so it was exciting seeing all all of those people there. Um, it was exciting to listen to some of the speeches. Actually, I was as, as intrigued by the celebrities who were on the stage, you know, people I had only seen on television, and uh, so I wanted to get as close to this. To the um, front of the march as, as possible but that's what I did is I uh, since I was there with no one it kind of freed me to wander around as I wanted and and uh, see what I wanted to see and and uh, as the March speeches went on um, you know I guess for me the highlight was John Lewis because I knew that he was the youngest he represented the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee and uh, you know, when he spoke, I knew that this you know, he spoke to my generation. But I think for most people, and including myself, you know, that we could see on the program that the last speaker was Martin Luther King. And he definitely was a person I had only heard about and never seen in person, never expected really at that point to see him in person. And. Uh, So I tried to get as close as possible to that, but I also knew that at the end of the day I would have to get out of that crowd and and find the bus, which I never did find by the way. So I heard the speech and was very impressed, of course, just like everybody else. I didn't know it was going to be a speech that people would remember 50 years later, but it it was definitely the the highlight speech and I, I could see why he had a reputation as a great orator. I'd never heard anyone speak like that. So overall, you know, this was uh, for someone 19 years old. I was only, I didn't just finished my first year in college. This was by far the most exciting thing I'd done in my life.
1: This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match
0: That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash history extra.
2: Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one Crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour.
0: How
4: then? In the space of less than a decade had martin luther king jr catapulted from a virtually unheard of southern preacher to a civil rights leader delivering a keynote speech at one of the largest protest marches ever staged to answer that we need to look back at his life leading up to this moment i spoke to jonathan eig the author of a new biography of king to find out more
2: he was the son of a preacher the grandson of a preacher but he was also the son and grandson of sharecroppers, grew up, uh, his, his father grew up in absolute poverty on a farm, a cotton farm in Stockbridge, Georgia. So this family really came from time of enslavement, the time of sharecropping, in very quick order to move to Atlanta, leave the farm as gran- Martin Luther King's father left the farm himself and really made himself into a preacher, educated himself, and paved the way for Martin Luther King Jr. to have a very unusual childhood for a Black person growing up in the South. Martin Luther King felt like he was protected from a lot of the prejudice, from a lot of the discrimination that most people of his color and of his race experienced at that time. He certainly wasn't protected from all of it, but he often said that he felt like he had led a fairly privileged childhood compared to most of the people he knew because he grew up as the son of a preacher in a in a comfortable home in a comfortable community that was somewhat isolated from the worst of the south's racism
4: faith was a cornerstone of king's life and became a cornerstone of his activism
2: martin luther king jr grows up in a family that is deeply religious his his father his grandfather were preachers. He's in church every Sunday. He's at church most days of the week because the church is an extension of his home. He lives down the block from the church where his father is the is the pastor and his mother is the is the musical director. People from church are coming over for dinner all the time. Visitors, visiting scholars and religious leaders are are sitting at his dinner table. He cannot escape it. He's memorizing Bible verses before he can read. It is literally the language with which he grows up. And more than that, though, it shapes his view of activism, because to be in the black church at that time is also to see that the church and the rules that that God has given us, the commandments that God has given us, are not in line with the laws of American society, and that the Bible demands that we do something about this, that the Bible says that all of God's people are created in the image of God, and that does not make a distinction for race or for ethnicity or for anything. So, He views his religious upbringing in line with his view that something must be done about racism and prejudice and discrimination in America. So they go hand in hand and always will for him.
4: Another key component of King's political beliefs was his staunch commitment to nonviolence.
2: Well, you know, he's a believer in Jesus, and Jesus teaches us uh, to turn the other cheek that we should love our enemies. And then once he steps from that into learning more about Gandhi, he begins to see it as a tool for political activism as well, that this can become not just a religious philosophy, not just a, th- a theology, but an actual strategy for plying change, for forcing America to reconsider, that if you can... Use religion, and you can use the theory of nonviolence. You can seize the upper hand. You can take the moral high ground, and you can show that you are better than the people who are trying to prevent you from having justice, that you are truly living up to the ideals in the Bible and the Constitution. So I think he sees not just a way of life, but an important strategic advantage in in nonviolence.
4: As we learned in our last episode— King was first thrust into the national spotlight at Montgomery, Alabama in 1955, when he became one of the leaders of the city's bus boycott. After the successes he enjoyed there, what would he do next?
2: King becomes a national leader because people realize that he can, if he shows up in their town, if he comes to help out with their boycotts, with their protests, that we can carry this thing. We can spark these kinds of protests all over the country. And that's when he really goes from being a local voice for a a bus integration plan to being a voice of the people all over the country. Well, after Montgomery, he tries to duplicate his success in places like Albany, Georgia and in Atlanta. And with less success, it appears to be stalled at times. You know, King doesn't really have a blueprint. It's not clear how you duplicate this. They only know that they have something special, and it's morphing. So you've got freedom riders taking to buses around the South. King's not organizing that. You've got sit-ins, people sitting at lunch counters, demanding to be served at, at restaurants that only serve white patrons. King's not organizing that. It's taking off because he created a spark, and now there are these fires blazing all over the country. And King is supporting them, brilliantly, really. He allows them to go on his, on their own. He doesn't try to take command. He doesn't try to tell them what to do. But he shows up in support, and he helps give voice. He knows that, in some ways, his greatest role is as a loudspeaker, that the media will come wherever he goes, that he will call attention to these great conflicts. And he's okay with that. In some ways, you know, we think of him as being this great, enormous figure, this larger-than-life person, but he's subsuming his ego in a way. He's saying, yeah, use me however you need to use me. If the best thing I can do is to get arrested, I'll get arrested. If the best thing I can do is lead a rally, lead a march, I'll rally and lead a march. But he's improvising every step of the way, and and that becomes part of his genius. In
4: 1963, it was decided that the next city right for a civil rights campaign was Birmingham, Alabama.
2: King and the SCLC, the organization that he and Ralph Abernathy and others create, the Southern Christian Leadership Conference, settle on Birmingham for their next big movement in 1963. They feel like Birmingham is the most segregated, the most dangerous city in America. Bombingham, it's often referred to because so many dynamite blasts are going off at at homes of black people who dare to stand up to the racist white authorities. And they settle on Birmingham.
4: After deciding on Birmingham, King travelled there to work with the local civil rights organisation, the Alabama Christian Movement for Human Rights. But it wasn't all smooth sailing.
2: They really go in without the kind of specific plan that they had in in Montgomery. In Montgomery, it was all focused around buses. In Birmingham, it's partly around integration. It's partly around voter registration. It seems to lack a little clarity. And at times, the movement is sputtering. Um, In fact, a lot of the the Black religious leaders in town are, are hesitant to get involved. And this is enormously frustrating to King. It's not until the movement decides to bring in the children, to employ teenagers, to ask high school, even some junior high school kids, even some kids as young as ten and eleven to join the march, that it really begins to take off, that it that it attracts the kind of national attention that had been lacking for a while. And it was controversial. Malcolm X even criticized King, saying, you know, you don't sacrifice the bodies and the lives of children to make this point. You know, the men and the women need to stand up for themselves. But he thought it was cowardly to bring the children into this. And it was very controversial. But Bringing the children into that movement and having them march really turned out to be a key event.
4: The controversial episode Jonathan is referring to is the Children's Crusade, when in May 1963, thousands of black children aged between 7 and 18 years old skipped school to protest peacefully in the city. The backlash was brutal, with the city's Commissioner of Public Safety, Bull Connor, instructing the police to use water hoses and police dogs against the children. Hundreds were arrested. But the protest made an impact. Eight days after it began, Birmingham's authorities agreed to desegregate businesses. King's role in stunts like these meant that he didn't only attract the attention of his fellow activists. He also drew the gaze of the international community, as well as the most powerful men in American politics.
2: As a result of King's rising fame, you know, he's on the cover of Time magazine, he's named Man of the Year by Time magazine. In 1964, he wins the Nobel Peace Prize. He becomes a major powerful political figure, even though he kind of doesn't think of himself as a political person. He has this incredible access all of a sudden, and he's able to use his fame and his leverage to try to push for legislative change, to try to get John F. Kennedy first to enact civil rights legislation. And then with LBJ, when Kennedy's assassinated, some people would describe this as one of the greatest, most productive partnerships in American history between an activist and a president. And they're able to deliver some of the most important legislation ever in this country, the Civil Rights Act and the Voting Rights Act. So King has access to power and he uses it. At the same time, he recognizes that His power depends on his ability to move the people. So Birmingham works because he's able to use it to get the attention of the presidents, to get the attention of of legislators. He's constantly provoking, he's looking for fights. He's looking for media attention, in part because he knows that this is a way to pressure government to take action so he's he's walking a very fine line it's a it's a tightrope really He wants to maintain good relationships with with the presidents but he's also seeking to be a pain in their necks and to and to make them uncomfortable whenever possible. And of course we now know that both the Kennedy administration and the Johnson administration are condoning the FBI's spy campaign against King that they're really trying to undermine his work at the same time that they are engaged in this, somewhat cooperative relationship.
4: This spy campaign was the brainchild of the FBI's director, J. Edgar Hoover.
2: So think about why the FBI sees King as a threat. You have to understand that we are in the Cold War at the time, and there really is a legitimate fear of communism. It may not uh, be valid in all cases, but there is this sense that that we are in competition globally with the Soviet Union and with communism. And King has many people working with him who have former communist ties. So J. Edgar Hoover is, is particularly worried about that. Kennedy, JFK, and RFK can't really understand why King would allow these associates to work with him when they have communist ties. They think it's bad politics, if nothing else. But there's also the bigger issue that King poses a threat to the status quo, to the white power structure that has allowed, in, in Hoover's case, you know, white Christian nationalism is, I think, a fair description of his view of, of American life and uh, what he supports. And King poses a threat to that. So even when it becomes clear that King is not under the influence of communists, that he's not trying to spread communism around the country, far from it, he's one of the great patriots in American history, even then, Hoover can't tolerate this, this threat to his way of life, to what he perceives the American way. And that's when they begin using King's personal life, his sex life, to try to undermine him. Once it becomes clear from these wiretaps that they've installed that... While King isn't doing anything um, that they should be concerned about when it comes to communism, he is behaving badly in personal ways, and and that becomes an affront to J. Edgar Hoover. That that becomes really offensive to him, and he becomes determined to destroy King's reputation because he thinks of King as a hypocrite.
4: Although Martin Luther King is now synonymous with the march, the seeds for it had first been sown long before he became a civil rights leader. A Labour activist and early civil rights leader called A. Philip Randolph was the first to suggest a march of this kind. In the early days of the Second World War, he proposed that 150,000 protesters should flock to the capital for a march as a means of securing jobs for black workers in the war industries. The mere proposal of such a protest paid dividends. It successfully pressured the president at the time, Franklin Roosevelt, into issuing an executive order that desegregated war industry jobs, showing the power of organised protest. The idea for the march was resurrected in the 60s as a means of driving John F. Kennedy to push more forcefully for civil rights. Fittingly, Randolph was one of the speakers on the day, telling the crowd who gathered before him, the march on Washington is not the climax of a struggle, but a new beginning. Claiborne Carson recalled the atmosphere on that day.
3: A lot of black people from, I would say I saw them as middle class. You know, there were young people like myself, but there were a lot of families, a lot of people bringing their kids to the march. In fact, some people called it like a picnic. You know, it was all very peaceful. And I think there, there was that fear before that there would be violence we found out later that there were military people who were just outside of Washington who were prepared to move in. But this was in the first part of the 60s where there wasn't a sense that, well, a riot is going to break out. I think that for most, they wanted to keep it peaceful, well organized. In fact, I think in many respects, it was kind of boring you know, that they they wanted people to be enthusiastic, but not too enthusiastic. Uh, They wanted them to sing, We Shall Overcome, but not some of the more upbeat movement pieces from the South. They wanted especially to make sure that people stayed well-behaved. And I kind of understood that at at that time, that they, they wanted to put the best face on the movement. And most of the leaders were older, You know, as I I mentioned, the participation of the younger activists like Stokely Carmichael. He wasn't invited to give a speech. And John Lewis was actually probably the most militant of the speakers who actually were allowed to speak.
4: As well as the 190,000 black Americans who attended, it's estimated that 60,000 white people also joined the march. And as this multiracial crowd gathered to hear King speak, they were witnessing history in the making.
3: Well, there's two parts of the speech. I mean, he was asked to give maybe a seven- or eight-minute speech, and he, that's what, what he prepared. And it was really modeled on the Gettysburg Address of the Abraham Lincoln. You know, it was, it was kind of that we should go back to the ideals of the United States, you know, the ideals expressed in the Declaration of Independence. You know, all... Men are created equal and endowed with certain inalienable rights of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. So I so I think for Martin Luther King, that was the idea, is just to say this country needs to live up to its principles. And that was all written out. You know, I I have I've seen a copy of the speech that he was supposed to give. And I was told that uh, certainly before he went up to speak, or he was Told I guess it was by Bayard Rustin. He said Martin, "If you you're the last speaker, no one's going to follow you. So if you need to take a few more minutes, do it. You can kind of see you know where he gets about halfway through his speech, and you now if if he had stopped there, it would have been a decent speech, but we probably wouldn't be talking about it today. And then he just went extemporaneous, and you know, to me, that, that's amazing, you know, that somebody in that situation would trust themselves as a minister, or as an orator, to just say, you know, I'm going to wing it from here on. And so he kind of gave a talk that he had been practicing for months before that, you know, of, and that's where he starts getting into his dream.
1: Sons of former slaves and the sons of former slave owners will they be able to sit down together at the table of brotherhood. I have
3: a dream. And it's so interesting that that's the, it's the part that if he had stuck to his scheduled remarks, we wouldn't have the I have a dream speech. And I think that that ability to inspire people is what, was his key feature.
4: The march turned the screws on the government as calls for civil rights reached a higher pitch than ever before. The next year, with Martin Luther King Jr. in attendance, the Civil Rights Act was signed into being by President Lyndon B. Johnson. We'll be focusing on this landmark piece of legislation next time. For now, though, King's story isn't yet done. After the act was signed into law, he continued to campaign. And his activism cast an ever-wider net as King moved to Chicago and was confronted by the racism of the North. This prompted him to launch the Poor People's Campaign, which focused on improving impoverished people's income and housing.
3: By the end of his life, you know, with the Poor People's Campaign, uh, you know, you, you've got the Civil Rights Act of 1964 and the Voting Rights Act of 1965. But when he went to Chicago, you know, black people were still poor. And they faced dual problems of segregation because housing was still segregated. Many jobs were still segregated, even in the North. Um, But also the economic problems that he faced there. And I think in, in some respects, there was that sense of, okay, now the movement has to go from the South to the North. And to some extent that was where it met its greatest resistance because in, in the South you could get the federal government to step in and that part of the civil rights movement was really about federal policy that if a state tried to resist desegregation the federal government could force them to do it but with respect to jobs and housing and issues like that, there was no real legal foundation uh, to do that. And uh, so that's why in the last half of the 60s, most of the battles tended to be in the urban areas, uh, especially in the north.
4: As well as condemning injustices in the north, King also increasingly embraced a globalist belief in this period. Like many other activists, he saw the U.S. civil rights movement as being inextricably linked to decolonial struggles across the world and rallied in particular against the Vietnam War.
2: And then when he began wading into bigger issues, because he felt like as a, as a preacher, as a believer in Jesus, that he needed to speak out on violence. And that meant condemning the country's role in Vietnam, that he couldn't speak out and attack the riots in Los Angeles if he was silent about the the greatest purveyor of violence in the world, as he called it, the United States government and the war in Vietnam. And he began talking about poverty and inequality. He broadened his attack. He went deeper and deeper at really adhering to his deepest religious spiritual beliefs, but he was criticized on all sides for it. And it became really difficult for him. And his advisors warned him that he was losing his effectiveness, that he would just stay focused, especially if he'd stay focused on voting rights in the South, he could have the greatest impact. But his conscience wouldn't allow him to do that.
4: Although King still felt compelled to speak out against injustice, he was keenly aware of the threats that he faced.
2: When King saw JFK assassinated, he felt like, this is what's going to happen to me. When he saw Malcolm X assassinated, he thought, this is what's going to happen to me. This is what happens to leaders. This is what happens to people who dared challenge the status quo. In the last years of his life, King felt like he wasn't going to live long. He became depressed, many people have said. And he certainly suffered from anxiety. He was hospitalized several times for exhaustion. And there were constant death threats. The FBI was harassing him, and he knew it. They were wiretapping his phones. They were planting bugs in his hotel rooms. And they were creating a kind of climate in which it certainly became more and more plausible that someone might try to hurt and kill him. And of course, his home had been bombed earlier, he'd been stabbed in the chest. It was not irrational for him to think that he might be murdered, assassinated, that he might die prematurely. And at the same time, he felt like he was becoming less popular, less effective, as he spoke out more aggressively on things like war and income inequality. So sadly, he spoke more and more often in those last years about the fact that he was not likely to live long. And in his last couple of speeches, he spoke to it ad- uh, directly. He talked In his drum major speech, he talks about how he wants to be remembered and how, what he wants preached at his funeral. And in the final speech of the night before he died, he talked about the fact that he had seen the promised land, but he didn't think he was going to get there with his followers. So, you know, sadly, he had a great sense of his own impending doom.
4: Early in the evening of fourth of April 1968, Martin Luther King was standing on a balcony outside his motel room in Memphis, Tennessee, when a sniper's bullet struck him in the neck. He was officially pronounced dead around an hour later. His assassination provoked a wave of grief in America and around the world.
2: Well, when King was assassinated, of course, the nation went up in flames. There were riots in, in almost all of the major cities. And there was a sense that this hero, this man who we didn't always agree with, uh, but this man who had risked his life to try to make democracy a better place had been been destroyed, and that America kills its prophets, Uh, America kills its rebels, that we may call ourselves a nation of protest, we may call ourselves a nation born out of rebellion, but we really don't walk the walk, and that we couldn't handle his challenge, that we didn't deserve him. I think that was the sense that a lot of... His friends and, and fellow activists had.
4: Reflecting on King as a man credited with so many extraordinary achievements, how should we best remember him today?
2: I think it's so important that we refrain from treating our heroes as saints. They don't have to be perfect. In fact, they're more powerful when we show them as being human. King had flaws, he made mistakes, he suffered. He struggled emotionally at times. He didn't always treat his wife as well as he should have.
4: This was Coretta Scott King, a brilliant activist in her own right.
2: He wanted to be better. He was aware of his flaws, but he carried on. He carried on with what was important to him. He gave his life for this cause. And we need to remember that our heroes are human, and that gives us the chance to try to emulate them. That gives us the chance to try to follow in their footsteps to try to live up to the what the example they set because if we think that you have to be perfect we're never going to even try
4: next episode will be in the white house in 1964 when lyndon b johnson signed the landmark civil rights act into law which legally outlawed discrimination across swathes of american society but did real social change follow many thanks to my experts for this episode Claiborne Carson, the Martin Luther King Jr. Centennial Professor Emeritus at Stanford University and the founder of the Martin Luther King Jr. Research and Education Institute, and Jonathan Ige, the author of King, The Life of Martin Luther King, published by Simon & Schuster in 2023. The historical consultant for this series is Adrian Ledsmith, Associate Professor of History at Duke University, who specialises in African-American history and 20th century history. This episode was written and researched by me, Rhiannon Davis, and it was produced by Brittany Colley. Additional checks were by Daniel Adamson. Thanks for listening.